Amen. You may be seated. Friends, do the words of that song describe your life? Are you living for Jesus? Or have you been living mostly for yourself? Are you someone who merely attends the Sunday morning gathering like a consumer? Or do you live like a member of this family, committed to the great commission of Jesus Christ, and deeply invested into the lives of your brothers and sisters? Does your Savior's love compel you to offer up your life every day as a living sacrifice in service to His people? How much are you willing to lose, to give up, in order to hear your Master's glad commendation as you stand before Him on that day? Beloved, I think it would be helpful for your souls this morning if you think carefully about these questions as you hear the Word of God preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me now in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 15. Listen now to the Word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are besides ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we hear your word to assess our own lives in light of the gospel. Renew our minds, O Lord, that we may not be shallow and worldly, being fascinated with all that this world finds impressive and glorious that we would rejoice in the quiet, transforming work of the Spirit in the hearts of your people. Show us the glory of our Savior's love, that we may live for him who died and rose to make us his own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, what would you say is the core tenet or motivating principle of our modern culture? The core tenet or motivating principle of our modern culture. Well, from politicians to pop stars, everyone is talking about it these days. So much so that they now have a whole day dedicated to it. February the 13th is now the International Day of Self-Love. According to the cultural experts, Self-love is having a high regard for your own well-being and happiness. Self-love means taking care of your own needs and not sacrificing your well-being in order to please others. The most important love of your life is you. And the whole point of celebrating this day on February the 13th, they say, is to love yourself so much that you won't need a romantic partner on the next day. February 14th, Valentine's Day. Now, while this might be the latest buzz, if you are viewing the world through the lens of Scripture, self-love is as old as Genesis 3, isn't it? Our natural fallen state is to love ourselves more than God or anyone else. We are by nature self-seeking and self-oriented. We seek Glory for ourselves instead of glorifying God whom we were created for. 
Now fast forward from the garden to 2023, we now live in a social media culture where according to one observer, narcissism, self-love, is not only normalized on social media, but it's rewarded by likes and follows and corporate sponsorships. Now in a world like this, it's, it's very easy to get swayed. The pressure is high. The world wants to conform you to its likeness, to get you to love its values, to convince you to put you first, to chase after glamour and power and status, to become enamored with outward appearances. And the only way we can maintain our sanity is to return to the scriptures every day and renew our minds. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, with unveiled face, we must behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed into not the world's image, but His image, from one degree of glory to another. Beloved, as Christians, we must recognize that our sanctification, our spiritual growth, does not come from beholding the glory of the things that the world finds impressive. No, it comes by beholding the glory of the things that the world finds foolish and scandalous, namely the glory of Christ and His gospel, the eternal glory of things unseen, the hope of the resurrection. All these things are not what the world is amazed by, and yet, these are the very truths that sustain us. The Lord has called us to walk by faith in His Word and be of good courage in all our labors in the world and in the church. It is Christ and His counter-cultural gospel that motivates us, that drives us to, to serve Him and to live for Him, even in our afflictions. Even when the world is opposed to what the church stands for. And this is what Paul faced in his day when he labored to preach the gospel and serve the Corinthians. Now from this letter we know that certain false apostles opposed the gospel that he was preaching and they attacked his apostolic authority and his character and even his motives. But this was not merely a leadership issue. It was not a mere leadership conflict. To reject Paul's message and his apostolic authority was to reject Christ himself. Remember that the church is founded on the apostolic word, the word of Christ's chosen apostles. So this was a salvation issue. The church was in grave spiritual danger. And while most of the Corinthians had reconciled and had once again embraced Paul as their apostle, they were still an unrepentant minority still under the influence of these false apostles. And this is why Paul was in great distress for this congregation, because he had planted this church and he loved them deeply and he wanted to see the rest of the members reconciled to himself and to Christ. And despite his many afflictions, he kept at it. He wrote to them to serve them, to build them up, and he kept going. He did not lose heart because he knew that he was a servant of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved him and gave himself up for him. And so after he describes in this letter how the hope of glory always encourages him in his suffering and how he makes it his ambition always to please his Savior, Paul now tells us, what motivated him to do what he did. And he does this because the false apostles were questioning his motives. We saw this in chapter 2, didn't we? In response to some of the charges against him, Paul argues that he was sincere in his motives towards the church. The church, they themselves, because of the work of the Spirit, in their hearts, they were his letter of recommendation. And even though his life was marked by suffering... Paul lays out for us that this is what New Covenant ministry looks like. There's no contradiction between the glory of New Covenant ministry and a suffering life. And while it may seem like losing in the eyes of the world, it's actually glorious because God is doing something powerful 
through the weak lives of His gospel ministers. Something that will last for all eternity. And so in this passage, we get to learn what motivated Paul in his ministry. He was driven, he was motivated by the knowledge of two things, two truths. Number one, Christ's judgment, and number two, Christ's love. Those are the points for the sermon this morning, Christ's judgment and Christ's love. But even as we consider these two factors, these two points, you should ask the question, why? Why does he tell us these things? How does that help the Corinthians and how does that help us? And the answer, the reason is given to us in verse 12. Look at verse 12. So that, he's telling us all of this, so that you may be able to answer those people who think and act in a particular way. That's the point. That's the point of him explaining both his motivations. This is for the equipping of the Corinthians to help them reject cultural thinking and to think Christianly, to enable them to resist and counteract the teaching of these false apostles who were leading them astray. And friends, this means that this was written for us as well, so that we too might be built up to think Christianly, to be transformed into the image of Christ and to stand firm in our faith. So let's consider that first point, Christ's judgment. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, as always, when you see the word therefore, we must ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, look at the previous verse from which Paul draws this conclusion. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. Every believer will one day in glory stand before Jesus Christ to receive an appraisal of how we have served him in these present bodies. Just think about that. Imagine standing before the majesty of the risen Christ, our Lord, our God. And having Him assess our service to our brothers and sisters, the services that we rendered in this body, these perishable jars of clay. Friends, that is no laughing matter. Standing before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We will give an account for those times when we have denied ourselves and served others well, Received, we will receive his commendation, but we will also give an account for the times when we have sinned, when we have not denied ourselves and fared poorly. We all must appear. Right? Make a note of that all because it's going to show up in verse 14 and 15 again. We must all appear. This is as sure as our resurrection. And this appearing before the Lord should cause us to be earnest and careful as we obey the Lord's commands to serve one another and build one another up in the faith. It should cause us to examine our own heart motives. Because remember, these acts of service that we have been called to do are nothing but our acts of worship towards God Himself, towards the Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge of this appearing. Notice what, he, notice what he calls this knowledge. Knowing that one day we will stand before Christ's judgment seat. He calls it the fear of the Lord. Knowing the fear of the Lord. This phrase, of course, refers to, to the awe and the reverence and the adoration that, that follows from knowing who God is. And that fear produces faith filled obedience, trusting and obeying. This is the teaching of God's word across both testaments. Psalm 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 8:13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Proverbs 14:27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. 
Proverbs 16 verse 6, By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This is how the early church was built up. Acts 9.31 Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The fear of the Lord helps believers remain steadfast in the face of great persecution. Matthew 10.28 And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now we know that this is not a judgment that leads to condemnation. This is an evaluation of the saved, of believers. The fear of the Lord is a reverential fear of our Savior. And yet I have no doubt that on that day there will be a creaturely trembling as we stand before the Lord of the universe. I can guarantee you that no one is going to walk up to the Lord for this assessment with a confident swagger. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that one day I will give an account of this jar of clay, knowing that Jesus will one day evaluate my service in this body, that causes me to tremble. And it stirs my heart to do what He has called me to do. Knowing this, we persuade others, says Paul. You see, the, the fear of the Lord doesn't give Him performance anxiety. It drives Him to passionate action. And that's the effect it ought to have on us. It should not drive us, it should not give us performance anxiety but should drive us to passionate action. It drives Paul to persuade others. It is an act of obedience that is pursued with fear and trembling. Or as Paul says it in Philippians 2.12, remember what he says about our salvation, it is to be worked out with, with fear and trembling. Now what is this persuading all about? To persuade someone is to try and convince them of something, to make an argument of something. And what was Paul trying to persuade people of? Well, for one, he was certainly trying to persuade people of the gospel, wasn't he? Paul was chosen to be an apostle by the risen Lord Jesus and was commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel so that sinners would have their eyes open so that they would turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they would receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus' name. And this is what Paul came to do when he first came to Corinth. Acts 18 verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When he preached the gospel to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 28. Agrippa knew what Paul was trying to do. He said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You trying to persuade me to be a Christian? Of course I am. Beloved, I think if someone asks you when you're talking to them about the gospel, when they ask you, are you trying to convert me? Tell them the truth. Tell them that conversion is the work of God and not man. That is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I can't convert you. Only God can. Only God can supernaturally give you a new heart. What I am trying to do is to persuade you of the truth. To believe in the truth. That Jesus Christ, my Jesus, not the Muslim Jesus or the Mormon Jesus, my Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Beloved, knowing that one day you will give an account for how well you have served Christ in the body, knowing the fear of the Lord, do you persuade people of the gospel? Is this something that you think about often as you reflect on your week? as you take stock of the year gone by, have you made use of the opportunities 
and the people that God has providentially placed in your life to tell them about Jesus. To not just give them a book, but to engage them in a conversation, to, to persuade them of the truth. Now, certainly God is able to, to, to convert someone, change someone's heart in 60 seconds, in a 60-second conversation. But just read the book of Acts and see how people normally came to faith. Paul would go from place to place, and then he would spend days, sometimes years, trying to teach and persuade people. This is why it's important for our visitors, for non-Christians, when they come to not just hear the gospel from me, from the pulpit, week after week, but it's important from you, the church, to engage them, to, to persuade them of the truth. So engage your non-Christian friends after the sermon. Prayerfully persuade them of the gospel. In this letter, persuasion is speaking in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17. It is openly stating the truth. Chapter 4 verse 2. It is proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. Chapter 4 verse 5. Now the false apostles also like to persuade people. But they did it using fancy rhetoric and worldly wisdom, something that Paul avoided altogether. And do you remember what he called them? He called them, he called these men peddlers of God's word who wanted to engage in this ministry only to fill their pockets with money. Whereas Paul refused to take money from the Corinthians, unwilling to identify himself with the Corinthian cultural image of the professional speaker. But Paul was also trying to persuade the Corinthians of his integrity in this letter, wasn't he? That he was a true apostle of Jesus Christ, that when he was with them, he acted in simplicity and in godly, with godly sincerity. That he loved them and he labored in great difficulty for their joy and faith and comfort. Whereas these false apostles were accusing him of being deceitful and crafty and taking advantage of others. But consistently in this letter, Paul defends his integrity. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul was keen to be above reproach. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, he says, We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. Beloved, a heart that hopes in God, a heart that looks forward to Christ's coming, a heart that fears the Lord and His coming evaluation of our lives will always be eager and careful to examine its motives. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is not just interested in your actions. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in the heart behind those actions. If you're looking at the glory of the gospel in the word every day for the renewing of your inner self, then this sort of heart examination is what believers are called to do every day. Because we know the fear of the Lord. See, Paul was confident that his life was an open book. And he made it his business to live in this way because he feared the Lord. The second half of the verse, verse 11, tells us this. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. Now remember that Paul is saying that in face, he's saying this in the face of those accusations. He's not, he's not just saying, well, God knows my heart. He knows that I don't resort to underhanded ways as I minister to others. He knows that I don't resort to worldly means. No, he's, he's confident that even the Corinthians would see himself in that, see him in that light. That they would be able to make a right judgment about his actions. Beloved, I wonder if this describes you. Knowing the fear of the Lord, are you walking in integrity as you serve one another in your earthly and dying bodies. So young men, are you giving of yourself 
spending time with other brothers, studying and applying the word because you fear the Lord and love Him? Because you see it as a joyful privilege to labor in His blood-bought church? Or are you merely doing it because you hope that some young lady might notice you and be impressed? What's your driving motivation? Sisters, are you giving yourself away, teaching and raising your children because you fear the Lord and know that He has called you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice? Or are you laboring in that way merely to have a list of all the good things that you have done so that you can always have an upper hand in manipulating your husband? What's your driving motivation? Beloved, the Lord knows our hearts. You may be able to fool yourself, perhaps even fool others, but you will not fool the Lord on that day. Driven by the fear of the Lord, the Apostle Paul pursued integrity, and so should should we, in all our good works. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I am talking about living a life while being deeply concerned about two questions every time you obey a command of Jesus. Number one, am I doing this in faith? And Number two, am I doing it in love? What's driving my actions? And is that desire, that motive, is it pleasing to the Lord? We have already learned this in 1 Corinthians 10.31, haven't we? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Now, even as he wrote this, Paul anticipated that someone might accuse him of patting himself on the back. And so he says this, verse 12, We are not commending ourselves to you again. He's saying this because he has defended his integrity several times already. Not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause or reason or an occasion to boast about us. What he's saying is this, he's saying, I'm I'm not doing this because I want the approval of men. I'm not submitting myself to you for your examination so that you can tell me if I'm qualified to be an apostle or not, so that you can tell me what a good apostle I am. No, he didn't have to. He didn't need to. Christ himself commissioned him. And the work of the Spirit in the lives of those Corinthians was evidence enough that he was a minister of the new covenant and a true apostle of Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 10.18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. No, he says, I am writing these things so that you, Corinthians, can boast in us in Christ's apostles, so that you can take pride in us, so that you can rejoice in the integrity of Jesus' apostles. That's what Paul is after by means of this letter, so that that affectionate relationship between him and the Corinthians that was broken could once again be restored. And beloved, this is what you should desire as you serve in the body. Don't do it for the approval of men. Do it for the glory of God. And when you serve in this way, people will notice and they will rejoice in the Lord. They will praise God for you. They will rejoice in the evidences of grace for the work of the Spirit in you and through you. And this heart attitude that drives your ministry will strengthen unity and love and affection in the body. This is God's design for us. Now, to what end does Paul want to give the Corinthians an occasion to boast in him. Well, look at the text. So that, this is the purpose, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, or quite literally, boast about face, that's how that word translates, and not about what is in the heart. He's talking about those false apostles here, those men who were promoting themselves, boasting in all the things that Corinthian society looked up to, strength and power and rhetoric and prestige. And they were not talking about 
things like Christ-likeness or the renewing of the heart by the spirit of glory. No, they were all about gaining prominence by flashing their letters of recommendation. They were all about name-dropping, throwing their weight around by bullying people and slapping them around. Now, you, you have to wonder, why would in the world, why would members of a church tolerate men like that? Because that's what they thought, at least some of them thought, that good leadership ought to look like. Powerful, pushy, influential, vociferous, whatever the world upholds as impressive. Why, even in our own neighborhood in Sharjah and in many churches around the world, there are churches who appoint as elders men who are rich, influential in society, successful businessmen. And they, and they do this with a cultural mindset being impressed with whatever the culture is impressed with. And so that's why they tolerate these men, thinking that this is what is best for the church. And Paul would say they are walking by sight and not by faith. No, brothers, knowing the fear of the Lord, we must make it our aim to please the Lord and be concerned first and foremost about what His Word says. God is powerfully and yet quietly transforming the hearts of His people by the new covenant work of His Spirit and preparing them for glory, a glory that this world does not know nor can see. Those are the kind of things that we as believers need to care about and be excited about. So what are you excited about? Are you excited about outward appearances or about the hearts of your brothers and sisters? Of how they are doing spiritually? When the Lord hears your conversations, and he does. What is he hearing? What are you talking about? See, Paul says, this is why I'm telling you about the integrity of my heart, so that you might glory ultimately in the grace of God. That treasure, that power that is at work in jars of clay. Beloved, in all that we do, we want all the glory to go to God, for He alone is worthy of all our praise and thanksgiving. Paul wants us to know that there can be no orientation to the self, but all faithful service in the body is directed away from ourselves towards God and others. Look at verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. You know, this phrase, beside ourselves, can otherwise be translated as insane or out of our minds. You know, this was probably something that Paul's opponents were saying about him. <clears throat> they were probably saying the way this man works and suffers and, and preaches, like who wants that? Who wants to listen to that? That's just insane. Oh, these people who call themselves born-again believers, they're fanatics. Have you heard that? By the way, this is what people said about Jesus, didn't they? Mark 3.21, his own family at one point opposed his ministry saying he's out of his mind. His own disciples did not understand why he had to suffer. Peter even rebuked him once for saying that. And you remember what Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. We all remember that part. But here's the part that will help you and I to know how our thinking can get messed up because of worldly pressures. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 23, after saying, get behind me, Satan. He said, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Not on the things of God but on the things of man. Looking to things that are seen and not what is unseen. Walking by sight and not by faith. Boasting in outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. We're not seeing the way the Lord sees. We need to put on the mind of Christ. 
Paul says, if you think I'm crazy, crazy to keep laboring, keep preaching despite these hardship, it's all right. I'm crazy for God. I'm zealous for Him. On the other hand, if we are in our right mind, sane and reasonable, like what I'm doing now, writing a letter, explaining myself away, it's for you, Corinthians, it's for you. Can you see what Paul is doing? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I work as a servant of God for Him and for the spiritual benefit of others. He is disowning, he is disowning all self-interest as a motive for ministry. You know, he says something similar in chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then verse 15 for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? What could possibly drive this man? This kind of commitment or devotion where he doesn't live for himself. We know that he's mindful of Christ's evaluation in the future, but what's driving him now? And that brings us to our second and final point, the compelling love of Christ. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. You know, this word controls suggests that Christ's love has a hold on us. Now, when we're suffering, we understand that, don't we? We want His love to have a hold on us. It is His love that keeps us from falling apart in distressful situations. We need to hear from Romans 8, 38 and 39, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But this word also means to compel. To compel, it moves us. It enables us, it empowers our will to do what is pleasing to Him. And here's how, how this works. Remember why Paul is explaining what drives him. It is for the spiritual benefit, the equipping of the Corinthians, as well as for our benefit. We need to know how to think, how to set our minds on the things of God. We need to know how to think if we are to please Christ as we serve Him in our body. So here's how this works. The love of Christ controls us, look at the text, because we have concluded this. Okay, what is this? We have concluded this. We have resolved or we are convinced of this. The love of Christ controls us not because we feel it, not because we have these sentimental, warm, fuzzy feelings. Not because love is in the air this Christmas. It's not those things that move us to faithful service. No, it is because we have concluded, he says. We have concluded. We have heard. We have learned. We have reasoned from the scriptures. We have studied. We have believed in the word that shows us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have become convinced of these truths. It is by faith in these truths that the Spirit empowers us to do hard things. To do hard things. And even crazy radical things like not celebrating a day to love ourselves, but instead gathering on the Lord's Day, every Sunday to resolve and confess, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be the glory, to confess that He alone is worthy of worship and to ask Him for the grace to live for His glory, because worship matters more than anything else, even our own lives." Something that everyone forgot about the last two or three years. And that's why the psalmist said, Your steadfast love is better than life. Now what exactly must we be convinced of in order to be compelled by the love of Christ? Well, look at the text. 
Here's what we need to be convinced of. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. Beloved, this is the heart of the gospel. The one here refers to Christ. Paul is talking about, he is explaining what the love of Christ is. That the love of Christ was demonstrated to us on the cross on which he died for all. Now what does he mean by all? Does he mean that Christ died for every single person on the planet? No. The all here refers to believers. He died for all believers in Christ. Remember, he is explaining how the love of Christ controls us. He died for all. And that tells you that when the Son of God entered into our sinful world and took on flesh, when he lived a perfectly obedient life and then died on the cross, he died as a substitute. He died for us all. For all of us. He took our place. He was our representative, our mediator. The death he died, he died for us. He took our guilt, our shame. He took our penalty upon himself to rescue us from self-orientation and sin. John puts it like this. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Or 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God. We didn't start this. We didn't initiate this, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this means He absorbed God's wrath. He took the penalty that we should have borne. This is how He loved us. This He did for us. Do you see what Paul is getting at? He's saying, if we understand the gospel and if we believe it with all our heart, then God the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and minds and in a compelling way impresses on our souls that if we are going to please the Lord as Jesus pleased His heavenly Father, then we too must deny ourselves, just like He did, and put our sinful flesh to death by His grace and serve our brothers and sisters for their spiritual benefit. This is how you will live if you have the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, living in you. Paul says the love of Christ compels us because we're totally convinced of this. We're concluded that one has died for all. Therefore, now what do you expect to hear after that? That one has died for all, therefore, well, you would expect, therefore no one has to die, right? That's not what the text says. Look at the text. It says, therefore, all have died. One has died for all, therefore, all have died. Now, what does Paul mean by this? This is, our, this is a reference to our union with Christ. It is a way of saying that when Christ died, we too died with Him. Now, you might be thinking, well, how is that possible? I wasn't even born then. Well, the doctrine of our union with Christ, according to the scriptures, this is the teaching that describes our connection to Christ, our solidarity with Christ that stretches from eternity to eternity. Beloved, this is foundational to our salvation. Nothing happens apart from this. So one theologian describes it like this. There are three aspects to our union. The, the roots of our union... So going all the way back, the roots of our union are in election. So think of Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is a mystery. This is a mysterious union. God doesn't just choose us in His mind. He chooses us in Christ. We are in Him somehow, in some way. The second aspect of our union is the basis of our union. Now the basis of our union is the redemptive work of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross to save us. That's His death and resurrection. And that's passages like this one from 2 Corinthians 5. When He died, we died in Him. And when He rose, we rose in Him. 
Or take a passage like Romans 6 verse 4. When Paul describes how our baptism is a picture of our union with Christ, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. Again, this is a mysterious union that is a work of God. And then there's a third aspect. And this is the one we're most familiar with. Our actual union with Christ. Our actual union with Christ, which is established by the Holy Spirit through faith. This happens when we're born again. This happens at regeneration, when we hear the gospel and believe. And everything from that point onwards, from our actual union in Christ, is in Christ. We live in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We will be glorified in Christ. It is even said that we will die in Christ. Physically die. That is, all of our salvation is in Christ and not outside of Him. So that's a crash course on union with Christ. So when the text here says... Therefore, all died. Paul is saying that this is how Christ loved us. Open your eyes. See how the Lord has loved us. He died and when He died, we died. Well, We died to what? We died to our old self, to our old way of self-centered, selfish, sinful living. Our old self was crucified with Him. And this is what His love has done for us. His love has freed us from ourselves. This is what his death accomplished for us, but there's more. Look at verse 15. And he died for all that, here's what his love powerfully does, that those who live, that's us believers, those who are given life through his rising, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, Jesus not only died, but He rose from the dead to an indestructible life. In His death and resurrection, He did this for all He came to save. He set us free from the power of sin and by His Spirit makes us alive to Himself. And He did this for all who would repent and believe upon Him. For all who would confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friend, if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this message about Christ's love for sinners. I want to appeal to you this morning. I want to appeal to your conscience. You know that this is not the God you worship. You have rebelled against Him and have turned to your own ways. But God demonstrates His love for sinners like you and me by sending His Son. This is what we rejoice about on Christmas Day. And so I want to persuade you I really do. I want to persuade you. Why would you want to perish? Why do you want to suffer eternal judgment? Why would you want to live for yourself and live for this world that is under God's judgment and is doomed to pass away? You may think you know what's best for you. And you may think that there is, that no one uh, knows you better or no one can love you better than you. You're wrong. No one knows you better than the God who made you. And He made you for Himself. And what could be greater than the infinite, eternal love of God? Turn to Him. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus and you will know everlasting love. A love like no other. A love so powerful and otherworldly that it will compel you to not live for yourself, but for Him. For those of us who are believers in Christ, beloved, does this love compel you? Does it control you? Does it reorder your priorities? Does it turn your goals upside down? Does it move you to deny yourself, even undertake great pains and and effort and affliction in order to evangelize and and disciple, to, to comfort and counsel, to encourage and pray and study and give and serve? Do you marvel at His love so that you love Him more and more every day and laboring for Him seems less of a chore? 
and more of a joyful privilege. Are you living for Him who for your sake died and was raised? See, this is how Paul encourages us in Romans 6, verses 7 to 11. Listen to this. For one who has died, for one who has died, that's us, we have died to ourselves in Christ, has been set free from sin, set free from the power of sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion, control over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, to love like Jesus is to labor for the faith and joy of others, to consider the spiritual growth of others more important than your own comforts or advantage. If you are controlled by the love of Christ, then this is what we must do. Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some translations will say vain glory. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Can you do that? And this verse always makes me smile. More significant than myself. Can you do that? Count others more significant than yourself? Like order your whole day and your week, not around yourself, but around Christ and His commands and His priorities and His loves, your whole life. You know, the world would say that's crazy talk. But the love of our Savior compels us. And beloved, we must confess our sins to Him. For you know that both you and I have been selfish many times over. So repent and turn to Jesus for His cleansing power. The psalmist says in Psalm 130 verses 3 to 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Beloved, pray that the Lord would work in our hearts so that whenever we are confronted with a command, we don't start to make excuses or start to justify our disobedient, disobedience, but look for ways to inconvenience ourselves so that others may spiritually flourish. Just as the song says, were the whole realm of nature mine, yet that would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. One life, one life, and it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross. And we pray, O oh Lord, that the love of Christ that we read and study and meditate on in the gospel, that these truths that we are convinced of would control us, would compel us, Help us, O oh Lord, fill us by your Spirit and help us to, to walk by faith, to be faithful, to love as you loved and to serve as you served. Lord, we pray that you would establish the work of your hands and the testimony of this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.